was telling my story that uh, it felt like I was sitting in ashes and death and that's where God found me and gave me life that I couldn't have imagined having and uh, man that's incredibly encouraging to think about. Hebrews chapter 2 is where we are today if you'll turn there. Hebrews chapter 2 and uh, we're just going verse by verse through the book of Hebrews and so if you want to keep reading it will keep you in touch with um, what we're what we'll be looking at for probably months. And we're beginning at verse number 5 where we left off. Hebrews chapter 2 beginning with verse 5. The Bible says, Therefore he has not put this the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him who, for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the author of their salvation perfect through sufferings for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are, are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation I will sing praise to you, and again I will put my trust in him, and again... Here I am and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he, gives, he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Let's pray. God, thank you for the scripture. Thank you for its truth, and thank you for how it speaks and helps, and we pray that today we'll be able to experience it as a living word, which is what it says about itself, that it's living and powerful, and that it's able to reach deep inside of us and to uh, cause us to understand you as you convict and change and help. And so, God, we pray that you'll speak now in Christ's name. Amen. Sometimes we wonder if God's there, and if so, does he really care? You know, I think about the past week. We're only a week removed from a hurricane impacting uh, Florida. You know, it always seems to sort of skirt us and not really cause all that much harm. And then we forget about it, right? A week later, we've sort of forgotten. But people in uh, places like Fort Myers, Florida, haven't forgotten, have they? They're still neck deep in devastation. And we think about what the world is like. It's full of nearly daily reminders that it can be a really dangerous place. The world can be a really dangerous place. And our calm can be interrupted, and it usually is on a fairly regular schedule. You know, we're just kind of living our life, and all of a sudden, sudden some disruption happens to remind us that the world has risk and danger and the agreement we have with the elements around us you know I drove down 16 yesterday afternoon and I thought about you know right there at Pinbrook a huge wedge tornado came across the interstate and impacted the lives of people over in Pembroke. So the elements around us remind us sometimes that at best we have an uneasy sort of truce with them. And we think about the uh, scripture and what it teaches us about what it's like to be a person living on this earth and sometimes whether or not we can really sense that God is there and he cares. You know, I think about the story of Job in the Old Testament. 
it's a fascinating, you know, 40-something chapters of human suffering. We, we see how that Job is uh, caught up in what seems like a contest between the adversary and God where, you know, Satan comes to God and, and uh, the sons, you know, the angels come before God and he says, where have you been? I've been walking to and through throughout the earth. Satan says, and observing, and you know, God says to him, have you considered, God says this, have you considered my servant Job? It's like God brings up his, his name before the adversary, which is a fascinating aspect of that narrative, and he, he, he says, there's nobody righteous like Job, and then in the next couple of chapters, we see Job's life basically devastated. His, his children, he has seven sons, three daughters. His children are all killed in a weather phenomenon. He's a wealthy person. All his wealth is stripped away from him. And you remember what he says after he thinks about that? The Lord has given. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That was how Job demonstrated. Yep, he was a righteous person. And then the next thing that happens is his health is impacted and boils break out all over his body and he sits and, and scrapes his sores with potsherd, it says, which sounds pretty unpleasant. And his wife says, do you still hold to your integrity? Why don't you curse God and die? So he gets great encouragement on the home front there. And you remember what Job said? He says, shall we accept good from the hand of God, not adversity? And he's still held to his integrity. And then for the next part of the chapter, you get, you know, a conversation with three quote-unquote friends who show up and advise Job. And basically, they're picking at whether he's a righteous person or he's not. That's what you get in, in this biblical account of his life. And Job, at the very last, God shows up and interjects into the conversation. And basically what he does is say, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And for about three chapters, God talks about the fact that the, the world to us is basically incomprehensible on so many levels. It's like we're trying to bring a teacup of information into an ocean of infinite you know, realities that we had nothing to do with setting in motion. And so it's humbling to think about the fact that people are made, we're limited, and we're uh, we've been created by God to experience the world, and yet there are limits to what, it, what we are as humans. And in Job, one of the things that the Bible says is that mankind is headed for trouble just as sparks soar skyward. Well, sparks always soar skyward. That's kind of the point of it. Man is headed for trouble just as the sparks fly skyward. So we think about the world and whether God cares when, like Job, everything around us seems to be destroyed and falling apart. We recently watched um, Ken Burns' documentary on the U.S. and the Holocaust, and I really recommend, I think actually everybody should be required to watch it just as a reminder of what's in human nature. You know, we think about the um, reality uh, for the East, for the European Jew in the 30s and 40s was that somewhere between five and six million human beings were killed in, a, in the most horrible genocide in the history of the world, as far as we know. And there's this sort of subtle group thing that allowed people to stand by while genocide was happening. I thought about it like this. If you put, you know, there, at so, certain times in, during the Holocaust, basically they loaded the equivalent of the population of Effingham County into trains and sent them to places like Auschwitz and tricked them into going into showers where they were actually gassed and then buried in mass graves, you know. And we think about what a man is, what a human being is, is like, and the, the part of that that I thought about as we were watching that documentary is God's providence and sovereignty. The question is, is God a good God? Is, does God care? You know, when things, I mean, I, I, I hesitate to even talk about stuff like this, but it historically happened. 
And then we, we say, is God's care evident? And so in the passage that we're reading today, it reminds us of how we've experienced God's care. What's the evidence that God does care? What's the evidence that God waded into our brokenness and that God cares and, and loves us? Well, that's what we see in Hebrews. And really, one thing that keeps me tethered in faith is the truth of incarnation. The Bible teaches that God became human, that God came here. And that's what this passage reveals is incarnation. So first in this passage what we see is that we know that God is good because he didn't abandon us when things went wrong. One of the ways that we know that God is good is because the world went sideways and God didn't abandon the world when it went wrong. So in verse 5 here in this passage we see the scripture talk about our hurts and how God helps. And we think about the fact that he says he created a person and one of the things that God did is to create, he, he gave dominion to people. So you have dominion in the world. That's what God said. He made people, and what, what it means is that we were given the privilege of superintending and of overseeing the world. And we think about the fact that the, when God created us, he put us in position over creation. And so in verse 5 in the passage that we're reading again, it says, For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. So we saw in other messages that Christ is compared to angels. And we saw that he's superior to angels because he created everything, including the unseen spiritual realm where uh, angels are. And so they're subject to Christ. But then the Bible says here that he made the world subject to man. He made it, uh, he gave us dominion over the world. And that we, we see that in scripture, people still struggle with difficulty and adversity. You know, I was thinking, once in a while a hymn will pop into my mind. And this past week, um, a hymn popped into my mind by an author, a writer, Charles Albert Tinley. The old hymn says, By and by when the morning comes, when the saints of God are gathered home, we'll tell the story of how we've overcome. We'll understand it better by and by. You remember singing that old hymn? And I, it, it was interesting to me, so I was looking up Charles Albert Tinley. He was the son of a slave. He was a self-taught musician. He taught himself to read by sounding things out phonetically. And he learned Hebrew. It was fascinating when you read this person who basically came from illiteracy. He connected himself to some friends at a synagogue. And he learned Hebrew through these friendships. And he went from being a janitor in a church. He was in the Northeast at times in uh, Connecticut and places like Philadelphia. So he went from being a janitor to being the uh, pastor of the largest multi-ethnic congregation on the eastern seaboard, 10,000 member congregation. Fascinating story, but he, he still uh, poured himself into hymn writing and pastoring and and uh, his life was characterized by, by great difficulty and uh, it's, it's amazing to me that he had the insight through suffering to write this perspective where he says we'll understand it better by and by I don't have all the answers currently but he says by and by when the morning comes when the saints of God are gathered home he says we'll understand it better by and by so we think about sometimes it's just acknowledgement in our humanity that we have to have humility before the fallen, broken world, and accepting God's purpose in it. In scripture, we see that people were uniquely and uh, created by God so that every person has dignity, every person is created in the image of God and has value and dignity because of that, and that God puts man in charge of creation, and that although uh, we're finite and created, 
God surrendered to us this domain, this world that we're a part of. So you exercise management over aspects of it. And we're intended by God to exercise that prerogative. In how, what are the ways that it manifests itself? In government, right? Part of our domain is that we organize government, employment, education, all the uh, different aspects of what civilization means, technology. You know, God gave that into man's power. We've done a swell job with that, by the way, right? We do an amazing job managing everything that, that uh, God has put into our hands. Well, not so much, really. You know, we think about what it means to be a human being. We experience the fact that we're, we uh, have this high privilege that we don't always live up to. And, and the scripture says there's a reason for that, that we exist under the curse of sin. And so all of our best efforts are tainted. And, and yet, we manage some good. But it, we think about the, the world and the commitment that God made to human beings as an aspect of our humanity and what we are. And we function under this curse of sin, and yet God is good all the time. God is good all the time. And for us, we, we're struggling to superintend and to flesh out this created order that God put into our care. And anything that can be used can also be misused. And so when we look at the world, that's an aspect of understanding why things are the way that they are. Anything that can be used can be misused. Anything that can be used can be abused. I think about the writer C.S. Lewis trying to help us make sense of the world that often uh, is chaotic and disordered and broken in the ways that we ex experience it. And he talked about free will, humanity and free will. And he said God could have created automatons. He could have made people that had no choice but to do whatever he commanded, but that's not what he did do. He, he created people with free will. And he says, though it makes evil possible, it's also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. So as we try to understand the world and we try to understand sin, he says it started out because God created people and made us free. And of course our decisions often went sideways and certainly went sideways in the very beginning. So even knowing that humans would sabotage the world and God's purposes for it, he permitted us to experience freedom. And that was a decision, as someone described it, full of glory and danger. And still we long for more. And Lewis addresses that in part of his writing where he says that we have this sort of echo of eternity. There's a longing that is still a part of our experience. And he says, if I find myself with a desire that no experience in the world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. He says, we were made for paradise. We were made for perfection. But we don't experience perfection. And he says, it creates in us this sense that things are never quite everything they could be. So our dominion over the world, as we see, went wrong. And the scripture writer says, uh, one testified in a certain place, saying, what's man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? And he, 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 everywhere here he's citing uh, Old Testament passages in places like Psalm 8, and eventually Psalm 22, to show us God's purpose and his fingerprints even in our fallenness. So we haven't mastered what it means to exercise dominion. That's what he means, I think, when he says in uh, verse number 8, uh, for in that you put all in subjection under him, you gave man dominion. He left nothing that's not put under him, but now we don't see all things put under him. He says, we look at the world and the appearance is not that everything is ordered under, under man in a way that would bring glory to his creator. We don't yet see all things put under him. What do we see in the world? We see suffering. 
we see ego. I mean, if you turn on the television right now and you uh, read all the political ads, we know that everybody is horrible, you know. I'm always amazed that these are the options that we're left with when it comes to uh, who we vote for. But out of control, egomaniacs, we see suffering in the world, we see uh, power-grabbing uh, politics and injustice and greedy selfishness and poor stewardship of the world that we're, we've been given and its resources. And he, he says, this is what we actually see, although God trusted into us the care of this, we've made quite a mess of it. We don't see all things put under his hand. And then you get the transition there. He says, but we see Jesus. We see Jesus, the perfect human, who also was made. The description of what it means to be a person is that we were made for a little while lower than the angels. Or our status is that we're uh, different. And he says Jesus came to be just like us in that regard, a little lower the, than the angels, on a mission to live among us and die as the only perfect representative. Uh, representative of this otherwise fallen humanity. So it's God's free offer to us that uh, gives us a life that we can't earn and don't deserve. That's the idea of grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor that he gives to us because of Jesus. And restoration as an aspect of what comes through who Christ is in his incarnation, him becoming human. Uh, start at something better, just like we sang about. We go from ashes, and he, he offers us the opportunity for something better, for a life that we were intended to experience. So we look at how do we know that God cares? How do we know that he hasn't just abandoned us? Well, when things went wrong, he didn't abandon us. He came to us. But the scripture shows, secondly, that we know God is good because he came to rescue and redeem us. That was the mission that he was on in verses uh, 10 and following there, that he came to rescue and redeem us. And it says about Jesus here, a fascinating thing. It says it was fitting for him by whom all things, in other words, he's creator, and we've seen that, and by uh for whom and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory to make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. So his, his identity was perfected through suffering. When Jesus came to this world, he made a path for us to follow him, but that path went straight through the suffering of the cross. He went to the cross on our behalf and... Uh, he captained our salvation is the way it's put here in this passage to lead us his servants in a train of victory but it was only possible because he embraced the Calvary road he was perfected through suffering was, does that mean Jesus wasn't already perfect no he was perfect but his, his the idea of what, how he fulfilled the mission that he had in incarnation was to go through the suffering of death and to die for us on the cross at Calvary. Jesus himself said it this way. He says, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. He says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down uh, willingly. And he says, I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it back up again. And this command I've received from my Father. So the scripture shows us in verse 11, it says, For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all of one, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren or brothers, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren, which is a, uh, Psalm 22, verse 22. In the midst of the congregation I will sing praise to you, and again I will put my trust in him which is describing this incredible reality of what God did that he, in coming to the earth, put himself in subjection to the Father. He willingly, uh, willingly submitted to the will of his Father so that we could experience the forgiveness of our sins and life. Although he's the one by whom we're sanctified, Jesus is our brother. He makes us spiritual kin, which is an incredible thought. 
The Bible says John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. So we, when we receive Christ by faith, we're welcomed into the uh, family of God. And Jesus is called in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, the firstborn among many brethren. So the idea of his incarnation of him of God embodying flesh and having a human existence was that he created the possibility of a spiritual family so we come to God through Christ and we're we're made part of his family the Bible says it this way in Ephesians 2.19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So that's what Jesus is affecting in this passage. As a human, Jesus, the God-man, announced, it says, proclaim the name of God to his brothers. So it's interesting when I read this passage, the timing is a question. Is it talking about only his time on earth, or is it talking about the uh, post-resurrection realities that are there for those who follow Christ? And I think the idea is really sort of both, that when Jesus was on earth, Jesus worshipped, uh, or he led people who were worshipping and accompanied them in worship as they... Uh, as he, because the word there is assembly, he he created really a congregation that started in his life on earth, but continued as he uh, was resurrected and then ascended, and then we see what happens in the book of Acts with the apostles as they share the truth they've experienced in Christ, and a movement happens that is based on faith in who they had witnessed him to be. And he says, I'll join them in singing hymns to the Father. Again, it's a fascinating idea to me that Jesus himself sings as a, not as a worshiper in the sense that we are, but as a leader of worship and joining along with others who are praising. And Jesus, the object of worship, is as the, the idea is the representative head of a new mankind. That's what he became for us in his leading and his uh, his death and his the spiritual truth that he communicates, he joins in celebration with the recipients of new life. That's what we see in this passage. And he puts his trust in the Father. In that he became vulnerable. And again, we you know we think about this re- reality during Advent or at Christmas each year that that God became vulnerable. God had to become a, someone who could be pierced through his wrist and through his feet and through his side and he had to become vulnerable he had to be uh, be made to bleed and he did that's what he came to do he came to experience life with the other humans that's what God did and he joined us the scripture says and he put his trust in the father I like this phrase that you see in Hebrews it talks about the in the days of his flesh in the days of his flesh, where, like we said before, if Jesus had been born into America, he'd been issued a driver's license and a social security card, and he'd have had an address the way that we, we have addresses. He had, there's this timeline historically in the days of his flesh when he, he comes to be with us and all facets of his movement, as one person said it, and thought are seen to be in accordance with God's will. That's how God is uh, performing this rescue mission, is that in his humanity, he is perfecting what it means to be a human. And, and he was perfect. And so that the innocence that he had to offer, he offered on our behalf so that we could become his children. We could be uh, born into his family and he could redeem the, the darkness and the fallenness that we talked about in the first so that we see what's in people. He came to rescue us and he, he came to purchase back for us the possibility of reconciliation with God. That's what he's doing in the incarnation. Recon, reconciling. I think about that, that, that if we wanted to understand God's purpose in a nutshell, it basically was that he, it's expressed in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where he says 
that he uh, God in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself uh, not counting their tra transgressions against them and he's committed to us a ministry of reconciliation so God himself his uh, primary purpose in becoming a human being was to reconcile people to him to make us part of his family through faith. But he says he's committed to us a ministry of reconciliation. So that's the life that we're living. Everything that we're about is is to be you know, involved in this ministry of reconciliation, helping others to also experience God through us as we forgive and we live a life of witness and forgiveness. And so... We see Jesus, he says, for a time made lower than the angels, made like us, in other words, experiencing life in the same way that we did, sitting down to meals with people. You know, just a fascinating idea that God himself came here, he had dinner with people, he sat down at the table with others, that he walked and talked with them, that he, he entered into our life uh, of joy, our life of suffering, and so we have the possibility of rescue and we're adopted and nurtured by God through Christ into his family. And so in, his, in the days of his flesh, we see that the scripture says here this, the reason for that, the reason that God would be born to a virgin, the reason that he, he would have a general sense of home in Bethlehem and Jerusalem and Judea and the reason he would make friends with fishermen and do all the things that, that he did when he came to earth is encompassed in, in this idea that uh, is expressed in the scripture for only as a human being could he die and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power over death. So he says this is why he became human to break the power of Satan who had the power over death in the sense that he instigated a fall which occurred, the fall happened. If you read Genesis, who instigated it? It was the serpent who shows up and hisses things like, as God surely said. You know, like God put him in a perfect uh, environment and uh, the serpent comes along and as the adversary opposes God and because the first humans listened this is the biblical narrative the race of human beings was thrust into the chaos that we currently experience and Jesus comes to rescue us back out of that and to effect salvation by defeating the one who had created an environment of death the wages of sin the Bible says is death and, and all human beings follow a pathway that if we commit to it, the Bible says there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. So Jesus came to disrupt and interrupt that by living with us and then dying for us. He said in scripture, the thief comes to steal and kill and to destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I've come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. It's interesting some of the uh, analogies that are used for Jesus in the Bible uh, related to animals. It, one, and one of those is that he's called the Lion of Judah, right? He's called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. There's a passage of scripture. I was trying to think of all of them. One of them says that as he wept over Jerusalem, he, he described himself as being like a mother hen. We don't always think about that one, do we? Where he says, if I could, I'd, I'd wrap my wings around you. And how much I want to comfort and nurture. Belief in you, really, that's what it says. And he, when we think of the analogy that the scripture uses here, it's the son of man. He literally became human. The son of people, a, hum, a human. And his humanity is essential to our salvation. His humanity allowed him to enter empathetically into our tragedy with rescuing power. That had to happen. And part of what salvation affects is our dread of, 
of death. That's what the scripture says here. For by all over all their lifetime, we were subject to fear related to the idea that we're going to die. I hate to be the person that breaks the bad news to you, but you're going to die. I've told you that before, right? There's a Twitter account that every day it posts the same thing. You will die one day. You will, and I will, unless Christ returns and intervenes in this world. And our sense about that doesn't have to be one of overmastering fear. Christians have a different orientation to mortality. Or we have the, we should have, because the Bible says, you remember in 1 Thessalonians, see then that you do not mourn as others who have no hope. We don't have to mourn like people who have no hope if the people that we love have died in faith. Because the scripture says that Jesus came to defeat the one that had the power of death, and that's exactly what he did. He, he overcame through his resurrection the, the power of death, and he turned it on its, on its ear. So part of what salvation affects is our dread of death. And of course, death should be terrifying to the person who doesn't know Jesus in a transformational way. It should be terrifying to die without hope, to die without uh, forgiveness. should be a terrifying reality. But it's not necessary for anyone. The scripture says the seed of Abraham here are those who uh, he gives help to. It's interesting. He doesn't help angels. What we know as we study the scriptures, apparently when an angel rebels and rejects God, that's it. That's the end. From what we're told in scripture, there's no possibility of redemption. But that's not what God says about humans. When humans were fallen, there is for us the possibility of redemption. That's why it says uh, the way it does there, that he doesn't give aid to angels, but to the seed of Abraham in verse 16, which is talking about people of faith, being friends of God. We sang about it earlier. That uh, The seed of Abraham, what does it say in Scripture about Abraham? That Abraham was a friend of God. It says Abraham did what? Believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, or as righteousness. So what God requires in people is faith. Faith. The old hymn again says, faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Well, what is that but a hymn somebody wrote about a passage in 1 John. What overcomes the world? Our faith overcomes. The idea that we believe that this one who came and we talk about historically as having had a life, uh, that that one is the one who has the ability to redeem and to rescue. He's the final and complete high priest. That's the point that the writer in Hebrews is trying to communicate to a mostly Jewish audience in his day who had been put into a pressure cooker of a life, really. Because all of their family members were, for the most part, holding on to a a pathway of, of religion that didn't include Jesus. And so by opening their life up to Jesus, they were experiencing suffering and adversity and rejection. And it's exactly what Jesus anticipated because don't we experience that in family systems sometimes that our love for Jesus creates for us a sense of almost adversarial posturing among other people because of the things we believe and we're committed to. And Jesus anticipated that. He said, if the world hates you, guess what? It hated me first. And if you love me and you follow me, there's every possibility that the world's going to hate you. And so what? Just keep loving me and following me. So Jesus gives for us this hope, not without some difficulty. But he's the complete high priest, and that's what he was writing to these believers, is that they had a high priest, but that high priest was a human like them. That high priest had to make a sacrifice of blood for himself as well as the other worshipers, but not with Jesus. When Jesus' blood was poured out, it was for us. It was for you and I. Not for himself, because he was the perfect high priest. 
And we think about this question that we started off with when we think about the world. Does it have uh, good moments? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I know for sure that in Florida right now, there are people who have deployed like Samaritan's Purse or Send Relief and other uh, Christian ministries who go in and they clean up debris and they love people and they take things to them that they need and I think that's part of how we express dominion in the world is like when it gets disordered we wade in to try to bring order we take a stand for a right in the middle of a world that's gone sideways so in that sense we're we're living for Jesus and we're exercising dominion anytime we do good when we could do wrong in, in bringing order to the world, we're exercising the kind of dominion that the Bible says that we should here in managing and stewarding the world and its resources. And I think that's our obligation. But when we think about the chaos in the world, when we think about God's role in it, and we think about God being sovereign, and we say, why are things this way if God is, is sovereign? We should remember that God waited in. That far from abandoning us in our pain, Jesus was neck deep in it. Jesus wept with people that wept. Jesus stood at the graveside of his friend Lazarus and he was in tears for the loss and the hurt. And of course he also was able to bring life into that. And he did bring life to his friend Lazarus in death. Jesus was able, as we talked about before, when he, he saw a child convulsed and possessed to bring healing and hope to a father. And all the things that we would expect to happen when God broke in happened when Jesus came to, to earth. And we see God's heart. And we see that he had empathy. His life enabled him to have profound empathy for us. And it, when we go through Hebrews, we're going to see that in chapter 4 particularly in other places that he became for us a high priest who opens for us the possibility of prayer and hope and mercy. Those are all the good things that he did by becoming human. And in life, his life here, it enabled him to have that kind of empathy and kindness toward people and bring to us the possibility of healing and hope. And God's concern could not have been more emphatically demonstrated than in the life of Jesus. So if a person said, how do I know that God cares? How do I know that in this chaos, in my broken hurt, how do I know God's care? Well, it was pretty emphatically demonstrated in who Jesus was and what he came to do. God's on a mission in this broken world. And the question is, are you on board? Are you on board? You know, sometimes we look at the world around us and I think God's call for us is to wait in. God's call for us is to be the incarnational hands and feet of Jesus Christ. Not to just curse the darkness. Anybody can do that, right? It's pretty easy to go, wow, the world sure is messed up. Well, what are we doing? That's our mission. That's our calling. God's not responsible for the brokenness. That's not the message of Scripture. He's responsible for the goodness and the wholeness. And he invites you in and me in to be his hands and his feet and his voice and his heart. He didn't strand us with no recourse. That's what we see in the Bible. Jesus emptied himself of his prerogatives uh, and he sat aside the privilege just to sit on a throne and he came to make us part of his eternal kingdom. That's how he opted to behave. And I think what the scripture teaches us is that we, we are expected to be like Christ. Of course, we can't be saviors, but we can be like our savior and having the same sense that he did that instead of like exercising my rights, I can put my rights aside to be a servant. He seeks and saves and salvages and plucks us out of despair. That's what he came to do. He blessed us when he could have blasted us. That's what he could have done. He, said, he could have said, I'm done with human beings. 
but instead he became a human being. And this too, I would say, if we have a God who we have completely figured out, you have some manageable imposter. You don't really have God, you have some manageable imposter that you've created. And that God leaves you worse off than the God you have to wrestle with like Job did in the Bible to finally conclude. You remember what Job said after his long, you know, 40 chapter discussion with his friends? He said, I've heard of you with my ears, but now my eyes see you. And he said, I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. This person, who is he? Only the most righteous person on earth among humans. When he actually saw God and encountered God and was able to think through his predicament, that was what he said. I abhor myself and I repent in, in dust and ashes. In other words, God, you're right. I'm humbled. And, I, and that's the position that we, we wrestle our way to, I think, when we think clearly about who God is. The God of the Bible entered our muck and ran a, a rescue mission that spanned the distance between heaven and earth in order to heal our sin-scarred lives. Now what? That's the question for you. Will you allow this evidence to convince you that you should receive his forgiveness? That's his intent is that every single person who understands this gospel message would also welcome him into their life. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Those that welcomed him into their life, welcomed him into their life. So the evidence, as we considered, is intended to bring us to humility and surrender and to receive the forgiveness that's freely offered in what Jesus did. Will you continue to join him in his mission? Will you improve on the mess that's been left here by others? Other people have left a mess. Maybe you've left a mess too. Well, God's inviting us into a redemptive way of life. And so that's the appeal I would make to me and to you today is... What are we doing to make this world that we're a part of a better place through our kindness and through our way of life and through our standing on truth? The world's... The imprint of God in the world's been marred and we are his image bearers. And so we have the opportunity to bring with us the image of God and to make it obvious to people around us to hold forth in a world of darkness like the scripture writer said in Philippians that said uh, in the midst of a perverse and crooked generation to hold forth the word of life. That's our privilege and it's our calling. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for the scripture and we live in a world that sometimes just doesn't make sense and yet you have a redemptive purpose for it. God, you've come to, to save and to rescue and you invite us into your, into your life and family and you invite us into this ministry of reconciliation. And I pray that you'll help us, that we'll take that seriously, that we'll accept it. God, that we'll uh, come alongside the people who need to know that there is a different kind of God than perhaps the one they've perceived and that we'll bring to them this light and life that we've come to know ourselves. And I pray for anyone today, God, that just needs to open up their life to the reality of your forgiveness, to the possibility of being brought back to you. God, that you'll help them to say yes to your offer. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.